Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Leslie Joe Weaver, Associate Professor of Global Studies at the University of Oregon. Her research interests include medical anthropology, mental health, race, chronic diseases, food insecurity, health disparities, and global health. She has conducted research in India and Brazil. Weaver's monograph, Sugar and Tension, Diabetes and Gender in Modern India, was published by Rutgers University Press in 2019. Weaver, along with former colleagues at the University of Alabama, produces an interdisciplinary podcast on the history and continuing impacts of scientific racism called Speaking of Race. Thanks, Joe, for coming on the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a uh, sort of a, a back in history question, what led to your interest in medical anthropology and in particular in India and Brazil? Yeah, that's a question I often get asked by students. Um, I'm one of those folks who always had an interest in biology. And when I was in college, I was kind of toying with the idea of going to medical school. Um, but I just happened sort of by chance to go on a short study abroad program in between semesters to India in my second year of college. And while I was there, I kind of stumbled upon a leprosy colony, which is now known as Hansen's disease. Um, and I was, it was sort of this aha moment for me. I was someone who had never really traveled outside of the United States and Western Europe until that first trip to India. And I didn't know that Hansen's disease still existed. I thought it was sort of like a biblical relic of the past. And so I was shocked on so many levels and kind of confronted with my own um, ignorance about this topic, and also really fascinated by the um, the difficult circumstances in which these folks were living and wanting to hear more about sort of how they coped with having a stigmatized disease and um, and being ostracized from their families. And so that was sort of when I changed tracks away from a potential clinical career and into a career in medical social sciences, which you know allowed me to ask questions like the ones, that I, that I got sort of interested in when I came across the Hansen's disease colonies, so things like um, how do people cope with illness? What does illness mean from a sort of cultural perspective? Um, those sorts of questions. So tell us a little bit about, if you can, a kind of a overview of the argument of your book, Sugar and Tension. Sure, so that book was based on my doctoral research, which also took place in India. Um, so after my initial uh, sort of first major research project in India, the Hansen's disease colony, um, I went back to India in hopes of conducting research on a disease that was becoming more and more common. At, by this time, I'd spent, you know, probably five years going back and forth from India. I learned Hindi and led study abroad programs. So I'd spent a lot of time there. And I kept hearing people talk about having sugar, which is sort of the colloquial term for type 2 diabetes. When I started looking into it, I realized that type 2 diabetes is a huge problem in India. Um, you know, of course, India is one of the most populous countries in the world, and the prevalence of type 2 diabetes hovers around the same percentage as it is here in the United States, maybe 8 to 10% of adults. So, you know, scale that to India's population, we're talking about millions and millions of people. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask some sort of similar questions um, as the ones that I had asked the folks of the Hansen's disease colony. So what does it mean to have type two diabetes in India and how, um, how do people cope with this illness? I was especially interested in how women cope with it because more so than most chronic diseases, you know, type two diabetes is really complicated to manage and it requires 
a level of sort of self-monitoring and self-care that's really far beyond what most people are accustomed to before being diagnosed. And especially in North India's relatively patriarchal societies, women are not socialized to think of and sort of center their own self-care as part of their everyday lives. And so I was really interested in the question of, you know, what, um, how would women who had been socialized towards self-sacrifice and the care of others, how would they adapt to having an illness like this? And that's really kind of the focus of the book. Um, one of my sort of key conundrums that I address in the book is the fact that most of the women I worked with for that study, uh, over 300 in all, uh, most of them had not well controlled diabetes by sort of biomedical standards. And yet they were living lives where they felt relatively fulfilled for the most part, where they were integrated with their families and communities and maintaining social roles that were important to them, like being a mother or, um, you know, being a wife, these sort of domestic roles in which the vast majority of women I worked with were enmeshed. And as a result, they seemed to be uh, sort of able to to conjure up a form of resilience that wasn't documented in the literature among people, say, in the United States who have diabetes. So the question became, how do I explain the fact that these women in my study have poorly controlled blood sugar and yet aren't experiencing a lot of the sort of social and even the physical consequences that we would anticipate and, and the mental health consequences too that we would anticipate um, in cases where people have long-term uncontrolled diabetes. And how did you explain that? Well, being an anthropologist, I think that culture and sort of social relationships are much more important to well-being than most of us uh, like to acknowledge, particularly in the biomedical community. And so, um, you know, after looking carefully at women's lives, after measuring their blood sugar, and I, I'm a biocultural anthropologist, so I do both cultural work and biological work. So I did a fair amount of looking at their uh, physical health as well. Oh boy, there's a cat. <laughs> after, after all of that um, analysis, what I came up with was that women, um, by remaining socially embedded, by sort of paradoxically not focusing on self-care as much as their doctors might have wanted them to, they were um, developing a series of sort of social networks that seemed to be buffering their mental health and maybe even their physical health. And there are all kinds of ways that that could be happening. You know, we could talk about the um, hypothalamic, hypothalamic adrenal pituitary axis, the HPA axis, which is what um, regulates our fight and flight responses. And the fact that that gets uh, sort of dampened when we're not stressed and gets upped when we are stressed, those kinds of biological mechanisms are directly related to things like blood sugar. So it could be that there's actually a physiological response underpinning this, but the broader argument of the book is that, um, you know, biomedical approaches to type two diabetes need to take the whole person into account and understand that just maintaining good control of blood sugar is not necessarily the answer to how to live best with type two diabetes. And I felt that the women in my study were an exemplar of ways in which one can live well with diabetes outside of sort of the rigid biomedical definitions of good blood sugar control. Seems like this argument has some significant Im implications for how diabetes is managed in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering about the reception of the, of the book so far. Mm -hmm. well, it's, relatively, uh, it's relatively new and unfortunately it kind of came out right before the pandemic hit. 
So I haven't had as much opportunity as I would like to, to give talks about it and such, but um, I do know that it's being used in courses, particularly in courses that are taking a critical approach to biomedicine. So that would be courses in medical anthropology or medical sociology, those kinds of courses where we're looking to problematize the assumption inherent in biomedicine that, um, you know, sort of cold hard science is the only and the best way to manage a person's health and well-being. So you've told us about the work that you did in uh, that you did in northern India on diabetes, but you've also worked in southern India on on questions of mental health. Will you tell us about that work? Sure. Yeah. Across, I would say across all the research I've ever done. So the North India work on diabetes, the work on Hansen's disease, this work I'll tell you about now, and my other research in Brazil, the kind of key thread that unites all of that work is questions of mental health. And so part of what I deal with in sugar intention also is how women talk about mental health, how they talk about their own stress levels, um, what they do when they have stress, who they go to for help. Um, you know, stress and what we might call depression in the United States are such um, subjective and culturally inflected states that I think they're really fertile grounds for uh, sort of culturally informed analyses of how people experience illness. And so even though the book Sugar and Tension is about sugar, diabetes, and tension or stress, um, I've since that book was published, I've kind of shifted a, a little bit away from the sugar part and a little more towards the tension part. And so that's what the work in South India is really doing. It's looking at um, how women sort of uniquely in this context talk about stress that is in the context of India, in this case, South India. Um, what terminology they use, as I mentioned a moment ago, where they would go to seek help if they felt they had too much distress, and even bigger sort of fundamental questions about things like how much happiness should a person have in their lives? You know, how much stress is a normal amount of stress? And because biomedical psychiatry and its sort of disease categories like depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder, those categories aren't very culturally relevant in this part of India because there are biomedical psychiatrists, but your average person doesn't necessarily know a lot about psychiatry nor understand their own suffering and well-being through the lens of psychiatry. Um, for those reasons, people have very different ideas in South India about what counts as the right amount of happiness in life and what suffering does in life and how much should be tolerated and what to do about it when it becomes too much. So that's what that work is looking at. And will you say, I mean, it's, you're particularly interested in questions of food insecurity. Is that right in that work? Um, that's more in the Brazil work. Okay, okay, so sorry. Tell us about your work in Brazil. Yeah, so I'm, you know, unlike, I feel like there are in my field in medical anthropology, there are people who sort of focus in one world area for their entire careers and ask different questions. And then there are people who focus in lots of different world areas and sort of ask similar questions in different places. And I think I'm more of the latter. Um, so the other major research project I've conducted is in rural Brazil. Um, it just so happened that I ended up there sort of by chance when my husband at the time was doing his doctoral research. Um, and uh, I ended up not going to that community intending to do any research because I mostly focused on India, but I had to pick up Portuguese while I was there because I had a new baby and um, I had a background in French. So I was able to learn enough Portuguese to speak with folks. And in that particular community, along with stress and mental health concerns, which I think are 
kind of human universals, people at the time in that community were dealing with a lot of food insecurity. And so the, the project that I ended up developing there, which was funded by the National Science Foundation, and it, it lasted for about five years, it's finished now, that project really looked at people's sort of indigenous, or so to speak, their, their local understandings of food insecurity. So what counted as good foods to eat, what counted as bad foods to eat, um, and how did people's ability to eat those good foods that they wanted to eat or not eat those good foods that they wanted to eat intersect with their mental health. And of course, it's probably not surprising to hear that in cases where people did not have access to the foods that they preferred, that they really wanted to eat, cat again, they, um, <laughs> they, they had a lot more stress and, and symptoms of what we might call depression or anxiety. Um, even in cases where they had enough calories to eat on an everyday basis. And so the, one of the big findings of that research is that, you know, it's not just the quantity of food that a person has access to that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about um, sort of global health priorities like food insecurity. We also need to be thinking about making sure people have access to culturally appropriate and acceptable foods. So tell us about the relationship between food insecurity and, and obesity. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a big topic in this literature. Um, particularly, a lot of this research has come out of the United States and Canada and sort of Western Europe. Um, in the US today, people who have more food insecurity are more likely to have obesity, which is sounds paradoxical. You might think the opposite would be true. But in the US, that's largely the result of the fact that the cheapest foods that we have available are the most processed, the ones that are most laden with trans fats and um, high fructose corn syrup and all kinds of sort of engineered foods that are, are designed to pack as many calories as possible into little plastic packages. And so, um, you know, because of our industrial food system, the healthiest foods, the ones that are closest to sort of a whole food diet tend to be the most expensive. Um, and so that's one of the main causal explanations for this link we are seeing increasingly in other parts of the world, but also in sort of North America and Western Europe between increased food insecurity and sort of paradoxically increased obesity. Has that phenomenon gotten to Brazil? Yes, actually. So in the study community where I worked, it was, you know, again, a small rural community. So I was able to work with most of the community. Um, there was a hugely high prevalence of hypertension. So over 50% of the adults I worked with had diagnosable hypertension, which is, you know, not the same as obesity, but it often comes along with obesity. Um, and quite a large number, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what percentage, but a large number of the folks I worked with also were sort of clinically overweight or obese, according to standard cutoffs for those things. Um, and so in this community too, where people were struggling, really, really struggling. Most of them were um, subsisting from month to month on government aid um, because this community is so isolated and there's very little opportunity for income generation. Most folks were um, you know, qualifying for government aid and were relying on that and were very food insecure and, and financially insecure as well. And yet there was this really high prevalence of um, obesity and hypertension as well. So we're seeing that more and more all over the world. So in addition to being a, a scholar of global health and, and global studies, you are a professor, a teacher. That's true. So, <laughs> so I know in the spring, you'll teach a course uh, titled Global Story of Race. Would you tell us about that class? 
Yes, this is one of my most favorite classes to teach. So I'm glad you asked about it. Um, one thing I haven't really spoken about yet is, you know, a, another common thread of my research in both Brazil and India is that these are two places, two post-colonial nations where um, particular forms of race and social stratification are evident. So in India, that would be the caste system, right? Which we don't think of as a racial system, but it's very racialized in a lot of ways. And in Brazil, that would be um, the racial system of classification that that is pretty evident, but doesn't look anything like the binary sort of black white system we have in the United States. And so um, in my first teaching position after graduate school, which was at the University of Alabama, I, uh, I found when I got there that there were very, very few people teaching critical approaches to race. My field anthropology, um, unfortunately, is the cause or, or is the progenitor of most of our modern ideas about race, because in the you know, in the 18th and 19th century, early anthropologists took on as their project uh, seeking biological diagnostic features of human race. That was how anthropology came to be. And so there's fortunately a fair amount of critical work that's been done in the history of anthropology that is picking apart the legacy of those really unfounded and ultimately non-scientific projects that attempted to find a biological basis for race and inevitably failed. And so I began to think about how, you know, sort of bringing together my experience of observing various forms of inequality in my work in Brazil and India, um, being at the University of Alabama, which is, you know, one of the states with a very vibrant sort of racial, racial strife and civil rights history, and thinking about where I was positioned in my discipline, I felt like it was really important for me to educate myself and to begin teaching my students um, in that setting a critical approach to race. So I first started doing that through my cultural anthropology course. And eventually I, I with the help of uh, Jim Binden an emeritus faculty member at the University of Alabama took over his former course, which was sort of a historical and biological and cultural look at, at race in the United States. I added in some focus on India and Brazil and I've since expanded that to other world regions. So that course is now morphed into the global story of race, which is the course that I'm teaching this coming spring. What I love about that course is that it's truly multidisciplinary. As somebody who thought about going to medical school, I have a biology background. So there's a portion of the course that actually talks about human genetics and human population genetics and what it means to say that race is not biological. There's a portion of the course that then draws on the history of science, particularly the history of anthropology to look at if race isn't biological, then why do we think of it as a real category? And then there's a part that draws on my own expertise in cultural anthropology around the world to look at how race systems continue to be perpetuated around the world today, especially in post-colonial nations like Brazil and India. So it sounds like a, a very fascinating class. I'd, I'd, I'd like to take it. Um, <laughs> you, um, you've already sort of begun to um, get at my next question, which is, you are one of the producers of the Speaking of Race podcast, and this is a podcast on the history and continuing legacy of scientific racism, which it seems like the course is somewhat about that too. Mm -hmm. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you, what led you to decide that you want to do a podcast on this topic? Yeah, certainly. So I really have my, my colleagues at the University of Alabama to thank for that, one of whom I already mentioned, Jim Binden. Um, and the other is Associate Professor Eric Peterson, who's a historian of science. Uh, Dr. Binden is a human biologist. 
And when I was at the University of Alabama, the three of us came together and realized that we were the only people at the time in the College of Arts and Sciences who are teaching courses that took a critical approach to race. And so we decided to put our heads together and, and one of the, we did some co-teaching and one of the many projects that came out of that sort of intellectual collaboration was the idea to do a podcast. Dr. Binden had just retired and he had this wealth of knowledge from his entire career as a human biologist that we wanted to capture. Um, and we also felt like from a social justice perspective, making the kinds of critical approaches to race that we taught in our classes available on a wider scale was really important because of course, you know, only maybe 30% of Americans even go to college. And of those 30% who go to college, the only people who set foot in our classrooms were people who are already kind of receptive to and interested in deconstructing race. And so our goal was to, to make that material available to hopefully a wider audience for the purpose of getting it out there because understanding that race isn't real and yet being able to look critically at its very real social implications is one of the most, in my opinion, important ways to bring about better racial equity in the world today. So you've, you've described the project of the podcast very clearly and well, and you, you said deconstruct race was a term you just used. Um, why is the history of scientific racism important to that effort? Mm, great question, yeah. So when I say scientific racism, what I mean is simply the scientific endeavor to prove that human races are fundamentally different on a biological level. And as I mentioned earlier, that's something that has been part of um, sort of academic thought since the Enlightenment era. Um, many of the social sciences today arose out of legacies that you know, we're, we're really devoted to trying to document racial differences. That includes psychology, sociology, anthropology. Um, it's important, I think, to uh, look at the history of those ideas because if you put them in historical context, you begin to realize that they're just one of many of the different ways that humans could have decided to approach race. And that sort of scientific and analytical approach to race that has uh, that's exemplified by those early researchers is kind of a blip. If you look at the larger scale of human history, you know, across human history, people for the most part have not spent a lot of time and energy trying to look at race as a scientific construct. And so that's part of it. Another part of it is to, um, to analyze really carefully what didn't work, right? It is the case that no matter how hard they tried, social scientists have never successfully sort of found a biological signature that would allow us to separate people into racial groups and or even worse to rank them in terms of things like intelligence or cultural achievement, right? There is, it's never worked. And so analyzing that history and looking at how many people have tried for how many hundreds of years to prove this is also a really good way, I think, to, to bring home the point that there is no biological underpinning there. So, um can you share uh, briefly like a, a particular episode of the podcast that was especially, you know, fascinating to you or profound in some way? Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. this project has been going on for almost four years now. So we've, we've logged quite a few episodes. 
Um, I think one of the ones that I like to, I, I use the podcast in teaching and so do other folks across the, the country and the world. And so in my global story of race class, for instance, I use the podcast as a teaching tool. One of the ones I like to teach with most is the podcast where we talk about genetic ancestry testing, like companies like 23andMe. Um, that is one of those sort of major holdouts, I would say, where, where people still are willing to accept and sort of play around with the idea that races are biological. Because of course, if you can spit into a tube and give your DNA to 23andMe and they can tell you where your ancestors are from, that sort of, that sounds like, well, they can diagnose my race based on my genes. Um, now, of course, it turns out that all of those genetic ancestry companies are private and, you know, the, the diagnostic categories that they use to assign ancestry are proprietary, although that is, I, I just heard that that's changing. 23andMe is going to go public, public, so I don't know how that will change things. Um, but, you know, these are not, they, although they have an air of science um, and they do a really good job of reinforcing the idea that our ancestry is written in our genes, um, they're also, because they're private companies and for profit, they're not holding themselves or being held by anybody else to particularly rigorous scientific standards. So we call them recreational gen genomics because um, their analyses and also their sample populations are not representative at all. And so, you know, I've had my genetic ancestry tested by multiple companies and it comes up really differently <laughs> based on which company tests it. And that's not an uncommon experience. Um, so one of my favorite episodes is, is that one where we go through uh, sort of some of the pretty heavy human genetics and biology to talk about why those tests don't really tell us much about our ancestry and why they don't prove in any way that, um, that race is biological. So we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question. What are you working on now? What's your newest project? Well, the stuff that I'm working on right now is, is um, actually the mental health work in South India for the most part. Of course, that's been interrupted by the COVID pandemic and um, I wasn't able to do any field work last year and I, I may or may not be able to this year, but I'm sort of looking towards expanding that work um, and especially beginning to look systematically at how um, people from different caste backgrounds in India experience stress differently. So up to this point, I've really focused on women in India and that's in part because as a woman working in India, just culturally speaking, it's, it's much more appropriate for me to be working with women, but also because I believe that women in India face particular challenges that make their experiences unique and important. Um, but I haven't spent all that much time, even though it's fascinated me and I've thought about it on the podcast and through a few publications, I haven't done a lot of systematic research on sort of what we might think of as racial or caste-based health disparities in India. So that's where I'm heading in the future. I'm gonna sort of be taking my focus on race-based or caste-based inequality and my current work on mental health and smushing them together to look at how um, sort of mental health profiles of people from different caste groups may be similar or different from one another. Fascinating. I love also the description of an of, um, intellectual trajectory as a smooshing together of things that you've done in the past. Yeah, we like to think of it as, or we like to describe it as being very linear and logical, but you know, sometimes our paths are not quite that way. So Joe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and to tell us about your work and your teaching and uh, your podcast. It's really been interesting. Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
I've been speaking with Leslie Jo Weaver, Associate Professor of Global Studies at the University of Oregon. She's the author of Sugar and Tension, Diabetes and Gender in Modern India, and co-producer of the Speaker Speaking of Race podcast. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.